Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza, and today is a special episode. I am... I'm talking with my friend, Jennifer Garner. We decided that we wanted to have a conversation about the Holocaust and talking about atrocities like the Holocaust with children in a developmentally appropriate way. And you can translate the information depending on your child's age and temperament from younger to older. I say temperament, which I didn't get into in this episode, but sometimes your child is age appropriate for conversation, but they are not ready for it. And only you can know what your child can handle. Not to say that you should never have difficult conversations with kids who are really sensitive and empathetic, but you just might want to think about that before you engage in really difficult conversations to make sure that you have space and time for their response. And then we talked about an unusual spin on our conversations, which is my grandparents' experience as Holocaust survivors. Um, And the reason that we did that is because today is Yom HaShoah, which is the day that we honor the 6 million Jewish lives lost in the Holocaust. There's a lot to say about that. I put in the show notes, web links for books and information. But today we didn't go too far into the details of Yom HaShoah, but enough so that you know that telling these stories and honoring the past and learning from the past is not as off topic as it seems for raising good humans. It's what we need to do. And so the first part of this is really about getting through these conversations with children and why we're having these conversations and what ages to have them and some supporting materials. And the second part is really just a personal conversation that we decided to have in front of everybody else to share my family's history. And it's so meaningful to me to be able to have a space where I can share this story. My grandfather can hear this. He's still alive. So it really is even more meaningful and because these stories need to be told. So thank you for listening. This episode does not have a sponsor because of the subject matter. We thought it was best to keep it commercial free, but please DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast and let me know your thoughts and any questions that you have. This is all starting because 
at the age of almost 49, it kind of hit me that the Holocaust, which has held my fascination, it has just suddenly felt much more tangible to me for some reason. And it's felt much more like something that I am suddenly aware on a different level that my friends' families went through it. And I'm also more aware than ever how I've lived the life of the non-persecuted, you know, a, a wasp basically who was only, you know, my family has overcome poverty, but other than that, nobody's been after this ever. That's not in our, it's not in our makeup. And I kind of feel like beyond Anne Frank, beyond Sound of Music, if we aren't talking about these things, they can happen again. If we aren't dealing with them, they can happen again. So especially given that the world feels like it can just go in ways that you don't expect. And a group of people can have a very intense belief together that they feed off of together and that can be counter to common sense or to common goodness or even to who they really are as individuals. It can just be. And so I am coming to you, my friend, the specialist for two reasons. One, I'm horrified that this happened, that this is part of your family's recent past and that we've never spoken about it. And I want to know as a friend and as just as someone who admires you, what that was, what their experiences were, what that meant for you as a child. And can you explain the developmentally appropriate ways to handle it with our own kids? Yeah. Wow. That was beautiful. Just wanted to say that because it's- I'll never say it again. It's it's so generous. Because these stories do matter and because you have, and as a side note, overcoming poverty is an enormous, that's not what we're talking about today, but. Yes, that, it's fine. That is, that's what I spend my life talking about. That's fine. It's, I give it plenty of, um, plenty yes. of, it gets plenty of screen time. This is not what we're talking about today. But it is generous to use your voice and your platform to share stories that matter and that are quickly dwindling away and people don't necessarily even believe or know about anymore. And so it's a little outside of, part of this is outside of my typical wheelhouse Mm -hmm. because personal stories with a friend about family history because my grandparents survived the Holocaust. And also it is in this wheelhouse because we can talk about how we can have conversations about really unimaginable atrocities with children and tweens and teens in ways that won't harm them emotionally, psychologically, or scare them to the point where they can't even take action, but still keep them informed. And I actually am, I heard Brene Brown say something that, really captured why we still need to have these conversations with our children, which was basically when you hear someone using dehumanizing language in any way, because dehumanization always starts with language, that we should get chills down our spine and resistance in our veins. And Mm -hmm. I really felt like 
that's what this is. This is a story about dehumanization that escalated to genocide. And as parents, we don't have to start by talking about genocide to have an influence. We can start by not allowing dehumanization in our language or in our children's language, even down to when they're arguing with their peer or with their sibling. So that was my first out of the gate. Like, how do we talk about this? We don't start with genocide and the Holocaust. We start with teaching kids that dehumanizing language is harmful in a way that allows us to be cruel and dissociate from things that we normally wouldn't feel good about. So should we go through young children, school-age children, teenagers? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say with young children, there is nothing more important than they're knowing that they are safe, that their bodies are safe, and that their loved ones are safe. So whenever you feel tempted to overshare something in human history, like the Holocaust, with the details of people being murdered for something that was out of their control, so anything, anything that happens that's out of our control can feel incredibly threatening. And when a child feels threatened, they can't learn. So you want to make sure that with young children, you're starting by talking about contributions made by people other than yourself. So in this case, it would be contributions made by Jews so that they don't come into learning about Jewish people by hearing about the Holocaust. Ah, okay. Then they can find, you know, if you have books, this is where books come in or finding friends that you can share holiday traditions with. You can do some, some things that help them understand from a young age that people who have different beliefs in the same way that people who have different skin color or different values or different anything that you still can learn from each other and connect with each other. So that's out of the gate. Lesson number one of the Holocaust is with young children teaching about the contributions and teaching that differences are not something that we think of as other bad. There are books and there's poetry for younger children, but I would actually recommend that, you know, you choose books that just were written by a Jewish person, mm-hmm. not about the Holocaust. Mm. And then once kids get into, and, and you can watch Sound of Music. Exactly. <laughs> and, and they'll pick up on what they pick up on they will ask some questions and it can be very general with younger children. It's there was someone who was, you know, in charge who wanted to hurt people. That was, that would be the extent of it. I would never go more than that. And I would also say, and this, this is just important, even though I can hear people saying, well, it's not necessarily true, but there are international laws against treating human beings in certain ways. Now we have to do a better job of making sure people are treated in humane ways, but for younger kids, they need to know that that we are trying to make sure that these things never happen again. But I wouldn't get into any details. And whenever you think about sharing a traumatic event with young children, think twice. You can't learn when you're terrified and they cannot disconnect from that scary event. So they won't be able to know that that won't happen to their mom or their dad or to themselves, even if they're not Jewish or, you know, whatever atrocity you're talking about, it's too hard. So focus on safety and celebration. 
when they're a little bit older, you can start to get into the specifics. So with elementary school age, you could say something along the lines of, you know, there was a time when Jewish people were persecuted simply because they were Jewish, because they believed in a different way of thinking and the religion was different. And it happened in Europe and it was started by a cruel man who was a political leader and his name was Hitler. I would not even have that conversation until you're you're pretty into elementary school, like second mm-hmm. grade, third grade. Mm-hmm. And then third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, you can explain there were Nuremberg laws that stripped Jews of their rights to exist. And it eventually led to killing people. But that's again, once they're nine plus and you know, they've they've learned that there are ways, there are wonderful things about Jewish people. There are things that have happened in the world that are really terrible. There are ways that we as citizens can make the world a better place. If they don't have that sense of safety and hope, don't explain it to them yet. I remember a poem shared with me before I was nine, by the way, it was too early, um, called I Never saw another butterfly. And because books are hard, this topic is really hard with books at young ages. Poetry is a much easier framework. So there's a a book of poems that were actually written from a concentration camp called Terezin. And it was before death camps. It was sort of a, a work camp. And there were pencils and paper allowed, which was obviously a big I mean, we don't need to get into it now, but essentially it was because the Red Cross was coming to look at the camps to make sure that Jews were being treated humanely. And so having things like artistic expression would perhaps trick the Red Cross into thinking that things were not as bad as they were. I actually want to read you this poem, but it's short and it's- I want to hear it. Please do, please do. Okay. I was going to send it to you to read. I'll read it. But I didn't mean to put you on the spot if this poem is too. I I don't know if you've ever seen anyone less put on the spot than me. (laughs) Um, This is a poem called The Butterfly. It was written by Pavel Friedman. And it was written in a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. The last, the very last, so richly, brightly, dazzlingly yellow. Perhaps if the sun's tears would sing against a white stone. Such a yellow is carried lightly way up high. It went away, I'm sure, because it wished to kiss the world goodbye. For seven weeks I've lived in here, penned up inside this ghetto. But I have found what I love here. The dandelions call to me and the white chestnut branches in the court. Only I never saw another butterfly. That butterfly was the last one. Butterflies don't live in here, in the ghetto. So that poem, a nine-year-old can hear, a 10-year-old can hear, we can hear it. It is painful. And Pavel did not live. He, He actually died in Auschwitz. It just reminds you that that was a real person. That was a real person who, who was discovering himself even in the middle of unthinkable, an unthinkable um, 
situation. He was learning who he really was and what mattered to him. And if you can share, it's not a whole book. It's not a whole movie. It's not a whole thing, but it's a human being. And you can really get so much more out of this by reminding ourselves and our kids to think about what an individual's experience was like. And they can write poetry. You, you know, you can say, have you ever written poetry about to help you get through something difficult? Mm-hmm. Do an exercise of writing poetry. There's no like, well, you haven't experienced this kind of atrocity. Mm-hmm. Not, that's not what this is about. But that poem and, and poetry in general is a way in to a conversation without shutting a kid down. So what about the diary of Anne Frank? So then, so I would say for a little bit, so not nine, but now like 11, 12, 13, the diary of Anne Frank is a wonderful opportunity to again, live the experience through your imagination by reading the diary of Anne Frank or watching the diary of Anne Frank and grasping a little bit about what it was like to be a Jew in that time and to learn also about those people who were helpers. Mm. Again, it shouldn't be read too early. And also, but what is also palatable about the diary of Anne Frank is it's not in, it doesn't take place in a death camp, Mm. which, you know, we can't conceive of what a death camp was like. The stories I've heard are just, they're, they're not, it's unfathomable what my grandparents shared with me. I don't know that a child needs to hear those specific stories first. It is so much easier to grasp when you're thinking about like the diary of Anne Frank, a lived experience of a child your own age and she does not live. I mean, all of this is about honoring the past, but also perspective taking and humanizing. So when you read that poem, you read the diary of Anne Frank, a child can imagine not to scare themselves to death, but to propel them to make sure that they take seriously what dehumanizing can do. Mm -hmm. And then of course, her beautiful message of hope. Mm -hmm. And her beautiful message of hope and her girlishness. It's like this poem is so, it's telling the story of an artistic soul. I know so much about Pavel Friedman because of that poem. You're, you're right. You can imagine what their experience was and that they were a person, like you said, mm-hmm. that they were going through their same things that all of our kids are going through day to day. And now all of a sudden everything is changed, but they're still like Anne Frank is still a girl going through girl experiences. So she's annoyed with her siblings. Who's in a, you know, whose mom is on her nerves. Who's just looking for privacy, who, you know, all of these things that are so hyper tangible <laughs> to any, you know, so many kids, yeah. um, especially after this year. But what yeah. I've always loved when I've read Anne Frank with my daughters, the ominous, you know, the, the cloud hanging over how terrifying it is and how much they live inside of that fear. But I love that when you are pushed to that place, that is when you also see beauty. And I love just like 
pointing that just the same as the poem. I love that. I love pointing that out. There's a whole school of thought. I mean, I was raised in the school of thought of like, if your ancestors or your grandparents had to go through this ancestors, I mean, my, my direct family, if they had to go through this or if other people have had, you know, I I've seen things where it says like, if, if this child has to be separated from their parent, then my child can learn about it. And the thing is, it's not actually like, what is your goal in teaching your children? Is it to have them become the kind of person who's going to make sure this never happens again? Or is it to just yell out into the world, this is not okay? If you really want to terrorize your kid, you can give them the uncomfortable readings and the painful stuff early. But I think what you're saying is much more aligned with the way I see this working developmentally and psychologically appropriately, which is to say, we can build on this, become attached to the idea that these are human beings and that human beings, no matter where you put them, find ways to stay human beings. No matter how much other people are trying to dehumanize them, we see beautiful works of art in in places where there is no way to have art. There, there were violins found hidden in camps. There's so much about those small things that feel like it's a frivolous conversation that are the more important story to tell your kids. And then as they get older, number the stars is another one for fifth or sixth graders that can start to tap into how painful this was. But once you get into middle school is when we can say, okay, now here's, here's some more really disturbing, devastating information. And again, it's not just to honor or it's not to scare. It's to, I think, ignite the need that Brene Brown quote again of getting chills when you hear dehumanizing, when, you know, and putting resistance in your veins, when you hear dehumanizing, I butchered her quote, but essentially to me, like if, if that's our goal and our raising our kids, then it's not a race to get all these facts in and to scare the shit out of them. It's a building. And so by the time you get to middle school, you can really talk to them that there were 6 million plus Jews who died and other people who were oppressed and murdered because they were not considered humans to the Nazis. You can also talk about current events and injustice and make parallel stories and watch. You can have conversations about how Hitler called Jews vermin and showed documentaries about them and put photographs of rats in motion in en masse and associated them with Jews crowding together. So it made it easy for anybody to dehumanize those people. And once you start doing that with your words and your images, you know, this is, we're not immune. So I think those things are important conversations to have with middle schoolers because you want your middle schoolers and high schoolers to understand that we're not morally above any of this. We are all susceptible to that trick of saying we are, we are going to dehumanize so that we can imagine whatever it is that we're being asked that is horrible. 
and we see it every day. And so that lesson I think is so important right now. And that's where seventh, eighth, ninth and older, that's the point to me, in addition to honoring the people who died and making sure that this never happens again. And then, you know, when you lift a problem like this up to kids or to middle schoolers, I mean, I, you and I both have middle schoolers who are passionate people and who want to make the world better. It always feels better if there's something, if there's an action that they can take, if there's something that they can do. What, I mean, it's ridiculous in a way, but what, <laughs> by the way, I'm realizing how crazy I look for anyone who's seeing a video. <laughs> what are you, sorry? You're everyone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. You're all of us. <laughs> so what's an appropriate action for a teenager? If a teenager gets hold of an issue or a, an injustice that they want to do something about, they will, they will know exactly what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And they will do the research. With younger kids, I truly, I passionately go back to the everyday vigilance of not allowing dehumanizing language, including the way we talk about people we think are terrible, people mm-hmm. that are, you know, the way we talk about Hitler. He was a human. Like to say he was a a monster or to say he was not a human is is a way out. So it's, it's that we're vigilant about our language so that we are teaching kids never to dehumanize and in doing so preventing in their DNA, the ability to tolerate any level of dehumanization. And then of course, as they get older, anything where you're interacting with people so that you personalize everything. It does, it's not just ideas. Ideas and talking are wonderful, but you want to physically touch, well, as from six feet away and see and do things with people that make sure that that difference isn't scary. That difference is something to participate in and get to know. I grew up without really, you know, there was not a large Jewish community in my hometown. And I didn't really know anything beyond my little, you know, Methodist upbringing, which was very sweet and very inclusive of other Methodists that I was close to. Um, But I, when I became an adult and was living on my own, I suddenly had all of these friends from different walks of life, different faiths. And it felt crazy to me that I didn't know how they worshiped and that I didn't know, you know, it just, as a kid, it was just like, wait, there's no Santa for Hanukkah. That's really as far as I ever got. And it was like, why, why wouldn't there, I didn't really, I didn't understand. And then I also was never taught all of the beautiful traditions, all the fun traditions, like finding the matzah. I mean, you know, it's not quite as fun as Easter, let's be honest, but it's a beautiful, it's not, but it's super fun and it's super fun. And there's, it's like, or the idea of sitting Shiva when someone passes and everybody coming through and having that, that time to really honor the person who's passed or the idea of the first time you go to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, if you haven't gone to them as a child and you experience like 
the family's celebration of moving this child into adulthood and the child's appreciation of what their parents and siblings have done for them and their ancestors and this connectivity among the generations and among that this entire community lifting lifting this family up to say, congratulations, look what you've done. And, and the child really embracing their faith going forward and saying, I know I accept this. This is part of who I am. And I will live inside of this faith and I will teach it to my children. It's just like nothing that I had growing up was that powerful. And I think there's so, um, you know, my kids and I have done Passover seders many years with our dear friends and we've we we have a menorah and we work our way through the um the prayers and lighting the candles and you know I butcher them but I feel like you almost it's important to experience these things. It's just like as a kid I I did go to Catholic church sometimes with friends or I'd go to the church that was Southern Baptist where they were speaking in tongues and it was all like oh wow wow this is all the same idea. You know it's just important I think it's really beautiful to get as many of those experiences as you can. It's true. Exposure is so much. It doesn't have to be the stories. And this is the same thing with, you know, the fact that there's such a small percent, under 5% of communities, even in New York City, are lived together in a racially diverse environment. It's so segregated, even in a place like New York City. So we really have to be careful and aggressive about finding experiences and opportunities to see outside of our small selves, making those efforts to engage with people and experiences that can help you just get outside of yourself is still top priority today. And, um, and another lesson, I think, of Yom HaShoah, because it's not a Jewish lesson, it's a lesson in humanity. And we're seeing... Mm-hmm we are being deeply challenged right now. So these lessons feel, I think that's part of this is why we ended up in this conversation is that we had the behavior at the White House where a guy in a shirt that says 6 million wasn't enough and Auschwitz, Camp Auschwitz, like you can't see that and not respond. And it's terrifying. And we're seeing this with so many people we're seeing so much hate right now and so much unspeakable stuff. So we have to speak about it. And I think we learn from our history. And so I, I think we both felt like, let's name this too. It's Yom HaShoah. It's a day we're commemorating the 6 million Jewish lives lost in the Holocaust. And there were other lives lost. It's just, that's not what today is. One of the things that makes me so nervous is the power of a crowd and the power of a great leader. And no matter whether it's used to hurt someone, to do something silly, to do something unsafe, whatever it is, I worry about that kind of fervor that you can get in inside of a crowd. And especially when it comes, when it takes you all the way to bullying someone or dehumanizing them or going even further but we can just keep it on the small for now. How do we talk to our kids about that to help them know when they're they're in danger of just getting swept up? Yeah, I mean, we all kind of, as parents of emerging adolescents and adolescents, like the, the idea that they would go with the crowd 
is terrifying and also developmentally appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of it is I'm a a huge believer that by the time they have the critical thinking skills that they have by adolescence and adolescence is a range from 10 to 26, basically. So it's, it's a growing brain, but by the time they can start thinking about it, it's a time to present them with scenarios, hear their stories and wait for them to be the ones to talk about being vigilant about it for them to come up with a plan. Like when you're in a situation where you see people acting in this way of dehumanizing, what is your plan? And they'll come up with a plan. If they don't have one or they need some language to use or they need to blame their mother, that's okay. But always opening with what's your plan? So what can we do today? As an aside, may I please ask you to write this book? (laughs) I'm not kidding where you help parents by offering different scenarios and then you offer language that they might suggest for their kids if they should need a way out. I always feel like I don't want to pressure parents into having more work to do. That's always why I never write anything. But okay. you could just do that occasionally on Instagram okay. on like a, hey, this is a what's your plan? And... This is something that here's one for you. Is that helpful? Okay. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So is it time to talk about your grandparents and their, in your experience as a little girl and their experience? Sure. We know where to, where to start conversations with our kids. We know about the developmental Mm -hmm. greatness, starting with kids need to feel safe before they can learn. And also remembering that kids under seven care deeply about their little world and need to know that that world is okay before you try to scare them into knowledge, which never works. The only other thing I would say developmentally to remember is that magical thinking lasts through Santa Claus. So imagine it goes a little longer because Santa Claus and the tooth fairy, there's a real payoff. So kids might allow themselves to believe in it a little longer, but just when you're talking about anything terrifying, just try to keep in mind that for kids under the age of seven or eight, they really have such a magical way of thinking that you need to just keep keep that in mind and that images are never coming out of their head if you put them in that are really scarring. So I would not encourage movies, images, books that are going to disregard that developmental stage. And then eight plus fears become more realistic and you know, you're afraid of somebody breaking into the house or a fire or something that's not so magical. And you can also get to, you know, you need to know that you're safe, but you can sort of understand you're different from a story about someone else. And then teenagers are activists. So I learned about the Holocaust from out of the womb because my grandmother had a tattoo on her arm, which anybody who was in Auschwitz had a tattoo a number instead of a name on their arm. And it was a double whammy of a disrespect because in the Jewish tradition, it is illegal to get a tattoo. So it's considered so against the religion to do something like that. And so the point is that was a horrible thing. So I grew up with parents who my, you know, my father and my uncle and aunt were raised by Holocaust survivors and they did not 
ever a day did not go by that the stories were not told. Um, and they were horrible, scary stories. But there was also an incredible love story embedded in that. And that is the part of it that I I hang on to the most. I love your grandparents' story. Can you just tell their experience? Because they are the butterfly. Their love story is the butterfly. And um, anyway, yes, please tell us a little bit. So my grandparents were in the same town in Poland called Pionki and the same ghetto. And they lived right near each other. They always said next door to each other, but I am sure that's an exaggeration. And at the beginning of the war, they were in the same work camp, which was like pre-death camps, but still no rights to exist. No, um, you know, not, not much food, uniforms. You had to wear a star to disclose that you were Jewish. And they went every day together to this work camp. And um, that's where my grandmother, her, her mother was shot there in front of her. And they would just kill people for just working slowly or just because of the mood. It was just a terrifying place. And it was not even a fraction of what Auschwitz was or the other death camps. And at some point going home, walking home together, my grandfather told my grandmother, let's get out of here because they knew that there were death camps. They knew about Auschwitz. And he said, run away with me. And she was like, you're crazy. There's no way. And he kissed her a real kiss, like a love kiss, even though he was 15. And he left to be, to fight in the resistance with his brother and a few other people. And she went to Auschwitz and he lost his sister and his parents right away. They were shot, but his brother survived almost the whole war. He took pictures, like he snuck to take pictures, which he showed me. And again, I don't wish this upon any kid, but he showed me pictures of Jews that were being put in the ovens in the death camp because they were, they were put like starved Jews, just put like in a pizza oven. Um, and they were emaciated and treated like it just, you know, there was just smoke. You could see the smoke coming up the chimneys, the ashes of the Jews. And he was, would spend the whole time kind of trying to catalog what was going on and also get food and then run into the forest. And they knew as a group traveling together to get this food and then hide that somebody would always die when they were getting food. So they really rarely did get it until it was like they had no strength. And his story ended you know, before he was reunited with my grandmother again, he was so many times in that position of being um, caught by Nazis who would then corral the Jews around large pits. They were just mass graves and just shoot them. And he had two strategies that he told me about. One was to run in a zigzag away because if they had to choose between the people running and the more of the people that were just standing there, that there was a more of a chance of survival. And if you were in a zigzag run, that it would be harder to shoot you. And just imagining a 15 year old kind of that that's what they're spending their time coming up with is so horrifying. 
And his other strategy was to, when they would shoot a bunch of people, was to just fall and play dead and have dead people on top of him and then climb out. And all of those were his experiences over and over again. And then right before the liberation, he had one of those situations. His brother was running. He was ahead of his brother and his brother told him, don't look back no matter what. And his brother was shot. And and he didn't know until he felt safe enough to find a spot. And then he never saw him again. And he runs through that story every day. And then he went back to his hometown or whatever was left of it. And my grandmother at the same time, and I apologize for sort of casually saying these horrible stories. It's because they've just been part of my narrative for many decades. But my grandmother was in Auschwitz and she worked in the kitchen. So she survived because she could sneak scraps of food and bring them to everybody else. And so she would help people stay alive with these scraps of food. And then right before Auschwitz was going to be liberated and the Nazis knew that the world was onto them and they needed to get as many Jews killed as possible, they um, got all the Jews they could to walk to another camp in Germany, barefoot, starved. It was a death march. And she was on that march and she walked to another death camp because they were just buying time. And miraculously, she was put into a cattle car at that death camp, you know, just packed in. And only three people survived from that car, um, that train. And she was one of them. And an Italian soldier found her after the car was, I guess it exploded open and put a raincoat on her and gave her a piece of chocolate. And she talks about that Italian soldier and that piece of chocolate. She died 10 years ago, but she, um, not even 10 years ago. And um, that moment was just another one of those moments for, for me as a memory of everything we do, every little act of kindness and goodness is so important. Like when you have that moment of, should I do, should I stop and do this? Yeah. Yes, if you can, you should. And then she went back totally, you know, knowing that her whole family was gone as well, just to see who survived and because where else do you go? And when she went back, she and my grandfather saw each other and she said she was mad at him because he did not give her a kiss hello. And he said hello to her, the group of people she was talking to. And she said, She was upset with him that day. And it was another one of those moments where she was being like a flirty girl um, in her story. And it's like, how do you make sense of the fact that this was this emaciated, traumatized, spent all this time in a death camp and she was like focused on this romance. And uh, my grandfather said, I took her out to dinner and then I was with her ever since. And then he later this summer, he explained to me when I say I took her out to dinner, I, that day, like I just was with her every day for the rest of our lives. And he just 
he said she gave him the ability to go on with his life because he had no purpose. And she um, was able to laugh and make him laugh and talk to him. The most important thing was they talked constantly, just like they were always huddled in a corner holding hands. There would be like, until she died, truly. Like if we walked into their house, they would be watching television in a corner, whispering to each other. And I always wanted to know what they were talking about. And he told me they were always talking about their memories because they didn't want to forget their family and they knew them. And every single moment they wanted to relive over and over because to not remember is to kill a second time. And that was their love story until she died. I'm so grateful to know it. And I, since the first time we spoke about it, I've thought more about your great uncle. I just want to, I want to know about him who said, don't look back and who was in the resistance with your, with his brother and who took that risk and. He was taking care of his baby brother. He knew if he looked back. It's so crazy to think how they survived the after, like living. How do you survive living with that much loss and with that violent, traumatic loss? And how did you, how did you survive being a child of trauma? Well, I think there's a ton of really incredible research on the children of Holocaust survivors. They do very well academic. If you hear Holocaust survivors talk, they almost always talk about their children and what college they went to and what medical Mm. school they went to. Like there's such an emphasis on that academic success. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's less a conversation about the transfer of trauma when you have Mm -hmm. un- checked trauma. And I don't know that there is a way to check that, you know, to really come to terms with something so heinous. But I do think that there is a a passed down history of this kind of vigilance. And there's like a sense of fear, like that the other shoe is going to drop because it's so good. Like you have it so good. And I think that that is what it, between that and like feeling like you have to achieve and be worthy of having survived. I think that that is the burden of a child of survivors. I think that that, you know, there's a tremendously high rates in children of survivors of substance abuse, of um, depression, of anxiety, of eating disorders, like anything that you can name that makes sense because how do you raise a kid when you weren't a kid ever? Mm -hmm. Um, When you've seen all those horrible things and then, the, the funny thing is, is the grandchild, you know, there's like this sense of, you know, you have to have purpose and you have to make a difference. And also like, if you shed even a slight tear as a child, like I had one grandparent that would like fix it immediately because heaven forbid. And the other one who was like, when I was that age, I was running in the forest. <laughs> from Nazis, you'll be fine. So it was like over empathy or none. But I think what I got was, which is I think pretty typical, is an ability to laugh at a lot and and not in an avoidant way, although maybe, but, um, but in a way of like, oh, human beings are 
amazing. And we can step through a lot if we allow ourselves to feel our feelings and also laugh a lot and um, participate in the world. So I think it was an honor to be the grandchild of Survivor. I can't imagine it any other way, but it's also, you know, it's an obsession. I'm, that's just part of the, to try to understand mm-hmm. how humans are capable of such horrible things is one part of the lineage, but to understand how humans are capable of the beautiful, remarkable things is another part of it. And I think that, that I bend in that direction. <laughs> Don't you think that it's so much about who you are and who you've, the career that you've chosen, the path. I mean, it's more than a career. It's like a a vocation, but don't you think that it's all related to this idea of, you know, a passed down trauma and trying to figure out how to build someone from the ground up and. Yeah. Yes. I am endlessly mesmerized by the power of our early experiences. And, and I'm, I'm certain that my interest in the like how a human being works and what makes them tick is it's not a coincidence for sure. Actually, there are a ton of psychologists that, that come from this background. I mean, look at um Edie Eager. Dr. Edie Eager. Yeah. It, so that to me is remarkable to have experienced it firsthand mm-hmm. and then become a psychologist and such a forgiving person and spreading mm-hmm. so much light in the world is like, and I thought it was beautiful that my grandmother never, you know, like she really held on to forgiveness as, as the way that we have to exist in order to move forward. And I think that is just deeply powerful. Mm-hmm. So if they can forgive that, I can forgive it if somebody was just like a little mean to me at some point. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's Rwanda and how they just decided to adopt radical forgiveness, radical acceptance that they just decided as a nation, we are going to get past this and this is the only way. And then they, I don't know, I'm not there. I don't live there, but you know, anecdotally, it sounds like, They've really done it. You know, there are many nations who have really done incredible work this way. Germany is a model for truth and reconciliation. We are not. We are not. We are not. We are not. We're big enough for too many pockets of, you know, and the internet also gives you a whole other place to live Mm -hmm. and to feed that very base part of yourself if you want to. You have been meticulous about not using dehumanizing language while supporting and while supporting what what is for me the right side of history. And also it's really, it's a skill to say this is not okay and still remain a human being while you're doing that. And I, I commend you for that. Cause I think that is one of the big problems that we're having right now as a country. Thank you. But I think also my father believes differently than I do politically and I respect and love my dad. And, um, I'm not about to 
speak of what my dad believes to be true. You know, I have my own voice and he knows it. And I, I say what I believe because it's important to me just as a person, you kind of, you have to kind of figure out what you believe in. And if you believe that it's the right thing, then you should talk about it and help make what you want a reality. You can do it with respect. You can do it so that your dad could hear it and say, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) So that I think is a big charge for our kids. You know, these are all these things that seem unrelated are all part of the same conversation because it's Mm -hmm. about, again, clinging for dear life to treating people like human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think anyone who listens to you, follows you is, you know, hearing us right now is probably not in danger of raising kids who are, you know, who aren't aware, but still, I know that, you know, I, as we're, as I'm listening to you, I have conversations ticking through my mind. First of all, I have the ones that I've done wrong. Always. There's, that's always like a ticker tape, like, like a CVS receipt. That's just like, Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, no, I did do that. But on the other side, it's like, Oh, I need to have this conversation with that one. And this one's ready for this. And I need to be thinking about this. And I would talk about this at dinner, but not because he's around or, you know, it's good to be reminded that dinner conversations can really matter and they shape you. You know, I read the girls. I never saw another butterfly because I was like, oh my God, I haven't read this to you guys. And I haven't looked at it in so long, but it was a poem that I remember so vividly. And I read it to them and, you know, I couldn't get them to watch Schindler's List over break. First of all, Vivian's not old enough, but I couldn't get Penelope to watch it. She was like, it's a big lift for me right now. That's what Violet said. She said, I just don't, it's too much. So I said, okay. And I said, but has a poem. (laughs) Can we do a poem? And they both, not that I want to see them feel these sad feelings, but it is the first time they, I saw their bodies react mm. and we didn't have a deep conversation. Like we, I read it and then I, that was it. And then we brought it up again a couple of days later, but it was so incredible to remind myself that we don't have to do all the lifting and talking. They really are at an, at a point and at an age where you can give moments or seeds mm-hmm. They build from that beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is true. I can definitely get in the, here goes my CVS. I can definitely get into over teaching, feeling like we need to talk about this. So let me, you know, let me research and let me talk about it. And here we better have this, you know, instead of just kind of trusting them. I mean, that's what you you know, that's what all of this work is, is that it's this long marathon that allows us to trust that the person that we are growing with and helping grow is going to be exactly who they are, which is what we want. And that person is going to have these conversations and think about these things. It's just going to be maybe not in these big, deep ways that we Mm -hmm. envision. I mean, I definitely wish I could give my kids a buzzer that they could press every time I go into like, I think I'm subtly giving them a lesson, but really I'm just being annoying Um, because it happens. And there's so much, there's such deep thinkers, these kids, not my kids specifically, but these kids. And Mm -hmm. when we give them space and a little bit of information, they do incredible things with younger kids. 
you do want to ask a few more questions and help guide them. But when you ask them questions, instead of telling them stuff, they think more. I wonder if, you know, if they played the piano every time I annoyed them, think of how much practice they they would get. That is brilliant. See, that's the book that should be. That's there the you have it. Parenting tip. There you have it for your, that's for your troubles. It's so generous because this is just one of those things that is so unpleasant to talk about and so disturbingly current. And you took so much time. I, I just love you. Oh my gosh. No, Lisa, I am so, I'm so grateful for the conversation. I am Maybe it also was like nice to sit with this. Yeah. But, you know, we're both in a weird position because it's like, I'm not a Holocaust history teacher and. And I'm your waspy girl. You're a waspy girl, but these voices aren't heard. So if we can get them heard or have people think about them, we can also have a book list. I'll put it in the show notes. You know, I will say, I think it's easy for us to talk ourselves out of having conversations because we can think I shouldn't have this conversation. I'm just a, I'm a Protestant girl who never, nothing bad ever happened to me, but it's still, I still want to know. I still want to have the conversation. What if, what if we just never think we're worth having any conversation? Like, you know what I mean? Then it's, then it just leaves too much open. We have to just as uncomfortable it is as it is, sometimes you just have to dive in. 